Welcome to VCR, Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I would like two large glasses of lemonade. (laughs) (laughs) I was not expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should have picked that scene for my... uh... The segment we just did, which I'm the drawing. segment we did last week. Yeah, I the mean, one the, scene to sell the movie. The one scene to sell the movie that we did last week and not five minutes ago, because <laughs> we don't re- don't let them peer behind the yeah curtain. yeah yeah. We got to keep the mystique going. Yeah, <laughs> no one can know how the sausage is made. Yeah, we're doing Lawrence of Arabia from 1962, the epic film that won all of the Academy Awards because this is also our Oscars film series part one and. It's a movie that, you know, directly compare we can compare and contrast to this year's likely Oscar Best Picture winner, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. So that's going to come up throughout this dissection of this film. This is our spoiler-full discussion of Lawrence Arabia. So if you haven't seen this movie, go listen to our primer episode because we talk spoiler-free as possible about it, who this movie is for, whether it holds up in 2024 or not. Spoilers. Eh, we'll see. I think if you've seen our uh, primer episode that we recorded last week, you probably already know basically our opinion on this movie. Yeah, and, you know, like, whether or not you want to listen to the full deep dive discussion without having seen this movie. Because, like I said, I actually think that potentially listening to the deep dive and having the full knowledge of this film going in actually might have increased my enjoyment of watching this movie a little bit interesting it's kind of like how um it reminded me of eight and a half where i had to watch it twice before we recorded before i could really wrap my head around it right this is the kind of movie maybe i should have watched twice but that would have been eight hours i don't have that kind of time yeah there's a limit to how much we can do at some point in time as well some (laughs) point in time yeah Let's I do just... find it funny, though, that like two weeks before we recorded, you were like, this is your two-week warning. It's <laughs> a four-hour movie, and we're recording on this day. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you you grumble about my organization skills, but yesterday at like 8 o'clock, Jason was like, I haven't seen this movie yet. I'm not sure if we're going to watch it or not. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, between me and Jason, you have to like wrangle us sometimes. Yeah. I admit that. Yeah. So I'm wrangling crazy apes. So yeah, basically. <laughs> If it weren't for you, Jason and I would just be throwing poo at each other. <laughs> you know what? It would be funny, though, like if you let me and Jason just do like an episode without you, just to see what the two of us could come up with. I'm, I'm waiting for you two to volunteer up one That would together. be pretty funny. Yeah, we'll see We'll see what you guys come up with at some point. I'm, I'm welcome to sit in one out. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. That would be funny. Anyways. Anyways, it's time to talk Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Starting in front of the camera and working our way back. And let's start with the opener, because this is kind of one of those, like, start at the end and... Figure it out. Figure it out kind of movies, yeah. I actually really liked the first maybe 10-ish minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, um, So it opens with Lawrence uh, hopping on his motorcycle. And um, just like the real T.E. Lawrence, he he went down a hill, he came up the hill, his vision was obscured, he was about to collide with a group of like school children on bicycles... So yeah. he swerved off the road, wiped out, and that's what killed him. Yeah. It's kind of an unremarkable death. Yeah. it's um, And there's that great shot of his goggles dangling from a tree branch. Right. And it's kind of it's kind of quaint because he's, you know, he's wearing like a leather, an old-timey leather jacket, riding an old-timey motorcycle with like old-timey almost aviator goggles. Yeah. I was kind of looking at him like, you look ridiculous, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then it's also kind of and like I'm I want to tread carefully here because that's actually what happened to the real T. E. Lawrence. Right. He almost hit a bunch of kids, swerved, wiped out, died of his injuries in the hospital like six days later or something. And like, yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk shit because this was a real person who died, but what a for such a larger than life figure, it's such a almost embarrassing death. You know? Well, well I mean, like, it, it goes back to the mortality of all of us, right? Like, yeah, you know, I we could so. go at any time in any unmeaningful, minor way. <laughs> yeah, I go. Like, let's think on that for a minute, viewers. And then, yeah, we smash cut to, like, we have that great image of his dumb goggles hanging from the branch. We smash cut to, like, a Roman bust, and it's his funeral. Yeah. And there's that great moment where all these, like, pompous British officials were like, Oh, did you know him well? And he's like, mm, I knew him. Yeah. And then the reporter goes up to a general and he's like, could you give me some words on Major Lawrence? And the general's like, you want more words? And then everyone keeps repeating like, um, oh, I didn't know him well. And then there's that great moment where the one official was like, he was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. Very iconic. Yeah. Yes. And then he like turns to his friend. He's like, he was also the most shameless exhibition since Barnum and Bailey. Really loved that quote. Yeah. yeah. So like, I really liked it because it immediately sets us up. It immediately puts you in mind of like, well, who was this guy? Yeah. A right? very divisive person in history and yeah. has just died. And it kind of even reminds me like as a, in the film historian sense, it reminds me of like a callback to Citizen Kane in a sense as well. Kind of. Yeah. You know, again, it's this very divisive and also like people seem to know of him, but nobody seemed to know him personally very right. well. Yeah. Well, and that actually, in a sense, goes back to like later in the film as we get to see the curtain pull back on who Lawrence is and like the people that he truly connected with in the film, right? Like there's points in the film where he can't connect to his peers in the British military, but he forms like some really deep bonds with the arabian people yeah definitely and then i actually did like then we kind of one of the dignitaries or whatever is like oh we performed a minor function on my staff and then we smash cut to like i don't know 30 years earlier and we meet lawrence as a young man and like he's kind of likable right like he's you know he's smart he's funny he's keeps doing this weird thing where like he lights matches and then lets them burn all the way down to the tips of his fingers and the one guy's like i don't know what the trick is lawrence and he's like the trick is not minding that it hurts yeah and i was like all right interesting and then he's almost blatantly insubordinate with his peers or with his officers and um you know i think in the first scene we see him he's like reading the newspaper and like he seems to know what's going on more than his superiors do yeah he just seems the impression is that he's smarter and maybe more curious than his superiors are. Well, and that a little bit speaks to who Lawrence is prior to the opening of this film. Like he's actually in real life, Lawrence was a bit of a scholar. Like he was a an archaeologist and he spent a lot of time before the war actually in the Arab countries doing archaeological research. So he is somebody who is knowledgeable, knowledgeable about these people and and their history. Wow, that and... would have been a great detail to include. Yeah, <laughs> but... yeah. They they really didn't touch on that at all. And I was reading about who Lawrence was afterwards and, and getting that sense of that. I was like, oh, you know, like it almost feels a little bit like somebody like Indiana Jones is inspired by a person 
like T. Lawrence, right? right. So it, it's something that I actually do agree with you. I, I don't know why that was skipped over, but I think that adding just one offhand line about that would have made... You just added that extra layer of complexity to the character of Lawrence. Yeah, for sure. Um, let me just ask you something. By the end of the movie, do you feel like you have a good grasp of who this guy is? I think yes. Okay. I actually do. Like Lawrence's transformation throughout this film and who he was. And part of that is, again, like I, I can kind of connect with this earlier Lawrence character yeah. a little bit. I did like in the second scene that he's in, he's mouthing off to a superior or something. And he immediately turns around and walks into a table, which, yeah. spoiler alert, <laughs> I do all the time. And it's just kind of like, oh, like he's kind of clumsy, you know? He's just kind of this bumbling guy. Yeah. And so, you know what? Like that, and maybe that's part of my goal for this kind of discussion is to talk you through how I find Lawrence throughout this film and his evolution as a person. Because, like I said, I feel like I did get a good sense of who he was in this movie. Okay. Um, although, you know, like, this is a movie based in a real person and a real moment in history. And to contradict what I'm saying right now and what this movie is saying, a lot of people who knew Lawrence really well say that this movie did not portray him well. Really? Okay. Yeah. I think there's a lot to talk about in relation to who he was, but at the same time, you know, just note with an asterisk there that maybe who we're talking about who who he was and who we know him as in this movie isn't quite the person that's being represented. And that's something that, like, this is in a movie for entertainment purposes. Yeah. If you want to get the full grasp of the history behind something like this, you know, pull up Wikipedia yourself or watch a documentary, basically, right? Like, Yeah, definitely. That's, that's not the, but... the primary motive for film is to entertain. Yeah, and you know what, though? I will say one of my big problems with this movie, and it's kind of similar to the problem I had with Oppenheimer, is and maybe I would feel differently if I'd done more research ahead of time or, like, maybe I just, I'm just thick-headed and it went over my thick head, but mm -hmm. um, I didn't really ever have a great grasp of Lawrence or, like, who he was or what he wanted. You know what I mean? Right. A lot of that, maybe that's me bouncing off the movie, or maybe it's the movie being a little vague and insubstantial. But, like, um, you know, this is the big problem I had with Oppenheimer, too, is I didn't really know who Oppenheimer was by the end of the movie, right? I know. Well, and it he... leaves it a little bit ambiguous almost. And, like, yeah. pe and people interject their thoughts on him, whereas this movie. Other than the opening scenes, it doesn't really interject to add people's a lot of people's commentary on who Lawrence is throughout it, right? Yeah, and you know what? Maybe that's, um, just thinking about this now, maybe that's by the first 10 minutes with that funeral scene, what was implicit there was, oh, this movie's going to show me who this guy really was. Right. And then by the end of the movie, I was, I was looking at him and I was just like, I still don't know what the fuck your problem is, Lawrence. So, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe I took something wrong from the scene or the scene set up something incorrectly. I don't know. Well, let's let's talk through it and we'll see if we can come to a better idea of who Lawrence is because I, I feel like I more strongly get a sense of who Lawrence is than, than you. And, and okay. that's even contrasting like Oppenheimer. I do agree with you that I didn't feel like I knew Oppenheimer all that well by the end of his movie you didn't know who the main character was yeah yeah you i definitely was a little bit more lost in the sauce in that one i think i do I was one of my one. favorite moments in oppenheimer was um when matt damon shows up and he's confronting oppenheimer and he's like 
I've heard that you're hysterical and a womanizer and dramatic. And I'm sitting there in the theater like, this is all news to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, yeah. and that's the thing is like, I, and, and maybe that's something that Chris Nolan was conscious of in this film. There's definitely ambiguity in this film as to who Lawrence is. And that's where maybe he was trying to use other characters as exposition to tell you what Oppenheimer is and what he stood for. Yeah, maybe. So anyway, uh, this is our first major Oppenheimer tangent. This won't be our last, I'm sure. Certainly not. So at this point in time, early in the film, he's given the task of, or the mission of assessing the prospects of Prince Faisal. Right. Um, which is as ambiguous of a mission as it sounds, and whether or not Prince Faisal's plans of revolting against the Turks and the Ottoman Empire actually is worth pursuing and worth supporting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, there's not a lot to go with there. Like and and Lawrence understandably is somewhat confused and unsure of what his actual role is when he gets there kind of thing. Yeah. But first, before we get there, we spend thirty five or so minutes in the Jordan Saudi Arabia desert. This is kind of the big like cinematic, big operatic score part of the movie where it's very beautiful and very loud and like you know i i love the fact that this movie takes place in the location it does because you know there's so much natural beauty throughout this film that it's like i didn't know that this part of the world could be so beautiful and it's not something that i'll ever get to personally visit myself because of all of the the complicated nature of that region yeah certainly so it's something that i i really adore and i really appreciate it but at the same time you know again entertainment wise the movie spends a little too much time here yeah i do love that moment later on though where the journalist asks lawrence like what do you like about the desert it's just like it's clean yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know we get all of that and you know we've talked about our gripes with that in the primer episode Mm -hmm. then we get you know him and his guide show up at sharif's well and drink from his well very this is like one of the first like cool like big scenes in the movie that I, I like you know i start to get back into yeah yeah, um, yeah where you see like way off in the distance and i love this mirage effect that they do a couple times where mm-hmm. you like you know it's so far in the distance that you barely even see like a shadow of what's going on ahead and this rider appears uh he and lawrence's guide essentially have a shootout like yeah. they have a they have a shootout and his guide uh, is killed and then we have the back and forth, our first back and forth between Sharon, Sharif and Lawrence. That's a great scene. Yeah. I also just love how like, so, how so like indignant Lawrence is in that whole scene, right? Where he's just like, you're a murderer. And then Sharif says something like, are you not afraid? And he says, my fear is my concern. <laughs> and then he's like, he says like, well, why don't you come with me and I'll take you to Prince Faisal. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere with you. He has this compass and he's like, I have a compass that'll take me there. And then Sharif's like, what happens if I take your compass? And Lawrence just says, this is one of my favorite lines in the movie, then you'd be a thief. <laughs> or something like, you'd be a thief as well as a murderer. And then Sharif just very calmly gives gives the compass back. And I was like, yeah, you tell him, Larry. <laughs> I have I have some thoughts on all of what you're saying as well. And, and the first one actually in your portrayal of Peter O'Toole's portrayal of Lawrence actually sparked something in me that I was going to mention earlier. I find Peter O'Toole's performance in this film to be somewhat a little too 
theatrical for me. I think he was primarily like a Broadway actor before this movie. Yeah. I think even he admitted he had to like learn to rein himself in for the camera. Yeah. Theatrical acting is much bigger because you're you want to make sure everyone like people in the back row can see you. Yeah. And that's where his performance really I felt that in his performance here and not every I think almost any of the other actors in this film are kind of on that same wave wavelength throw so it throws it throws some contrast into them and in a sense that's really good because Lawrence is just such a unique person towards everybody else right that he kind of stands out in that way but also you know again in a modern in a modern watch that was something I definitely picked up on and I, I somewhat clashed with a little bit Kind of, yeah. He has some great moments of acting in this movie. He has some also kind of silly ones, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of that was by design, too. Like, um, Right. My favorite scenes of the movie, to be honest, are when the movie is, like, making fun of or calling Lawrence out, right? right. There's that great moment where he's talking to Prince Faisal, and he says something like, oh, you think we're just a bunch of savages, and we're a backwards country, and blah, 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 blah. And he's like... And then he he actually says one of my favorite lines in the movie is he's like, we had like streetlights 900 years ago when your people were still like living in huts or something. Right. And I was like, yeah, nice. And that actually goes into the next part of what I wanted to talk about is for as knowledgeable and given Lawrence's background as an archaeologist, for his interest in the study of human beings, I don't think Lawrence actually understands the Arabian people. And I think that he thinks he does throughout this movie, but I think that there's a deep disconnect for his romanticizing of who these people are and who they actually are. Yeah, and again, no, I think this is my all-time favorite line in the movie. Um, Prince Faisal says, oh, the English have a great love for desolate places. Right. And then he later says, he's like, what is it with you English, you Englishmen in the desert? Like, He's like, my people hate the desert. We dream of green places, but you guys just love it here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The, and there's a romanticism, even in like the opening act. Like you, you see that you get the sense that Lawrence really loves the idea of this world that he's in and these people. Like he, he truly cares about these people. Like that's the thing that holds up relatively well in Peter O'Toole's performance is that I see how much he appreciates this culture and these people. Yeah, and like there's those great moments where he's bonding with his guide before Sharif shoots him. Exactly. And you believe he's genuinely upset. Yeah, and that's the thing is like, again, I can appreciate that as somebody who likes learning about other cultures. Like I I can see that in him and I can I can appreciate the performance in showing us that. But ultimately, and this is part of the narrative experience of who Lawrence is, is he doesn't understand these people. And that really comes to the head by the end of this movie is that his idea of who these people are and what he can do with them are very different from the realities of the Arab culture. Yeah, really. Absolutely. And so that I think that's something that's done really well in the film, actually. Mm-hmm. So he eventually meets up with Prince Faisal and, you know, he gains favor with him by essentially contradicting what the other British officer who's been tasked with, you know, accompanying Faisal throughout this advice that he gives him and, and Prince Faisal's like own kind of thoughts on on essentially giving up at this point. Like yeah. he's ready to pretty much throw in the towel against the Turks. That's when, you know, Lawrence basically says like, no, this is, this is your land. This is, this is your people. Essentially like you should continue fighting. And, you know, I have an idea of how we could maybe get the Brits in here and helping you out a little bit more. Yeah. He's almost kind of like going against his own government to help out 
the Arabs. Yeah. Yeah. And so he comes up with this plan to cross the Nafud Desert and a plot to overrun the city of Aqaba, which is a very important strategic settlement for landing the British troops in Arabia and really opening this area of the world up to British influence. Yeah, basically. And this is, again, I love this, and, and this is where, you know, this I really started thinking about Lawrence's place in this world. Everyone around him is telling Lawrence, this is a terrible idea. The Nafu like, Desert is not something that you tra- treat lightly. Mm-hmm. How many days of crossing, did they say? 16 days or something like that? Something like that, yeah. You know, you're crossing this. There's absolutely no water in this desert. We're likely all going to die. Yep. And Lawrence is completely like nope we're like we're gonna survive we're gonna do this this is gonna be one of the most historic achievements to happen kind of just thing like pure tyranny of will yeah like fuck the desert we're crossing it yeah and they do end up achieving that and then so again now we have another like long period of time like 20 minutes or more of of film camels in the desert desert. yeah yeah but they do succeed they get across right and you know he it's not without some loss. Like they almost lose Gassim, one of the soldiers he takes. They they take fifty of Prince Faisal's soldiers, something like that. Yeah, and as well as two of these orphan boys who Lawrence kind of takes under his wing as his helpers, assistants. Yeah, essentially. that was a pretty funny moment too. They're like, "We'll work for a shilling a week," and that other Arab guy's like, "Oh, that's a good deal." And then the one boy's like, "Each." And he's like, no, 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 no. That's a bad deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's Gassim. Yeah, Gassim, right. You know, eventually they lose Gassim and Lawrence is like, we have to go back for him. And again, these people are like, no, he's gone. Like this this was the risk that we all took. And Lawrence disobeys them and goes back for him. And, and actually saves him. And he actually saves him. And in reality, that like that actually happened where he went back. But and it, it's a big moment in the movie because everybody you know celebrates the fact that Lawrence has achieved this major accomplishment of saving this man. Yeah. Whereas in reality, afterwards they actually ridiculed him endlessly for that because of how stupid of an idea that was. Because he, in reality, probably should have died going and getting him. Well, the difference between the movies and real life. Yeah, and and again, that's where what I'm saying here with like Lawrence as a as a person and as a character. He doesn't understand these people in this place that he's in, even though he thinks he does. He also doesn't seem to understand consequences all that well. Yeah. 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 And that that's something that comes back over and over again throughout the film as well. And people questioning him and him just like being so assured of himself. But that's where, you know, when he saves Gassim, we get one of the coolest shots of the entire movie with, again, the mirage kind of aspect and, and him appearing. Yeah. Just as like a, a technical aspect, this is kind of impeding on uh, effects and filming, but they used a really, really special lens for that. And what they used was a 482 millimeter lens from Panavision. Like they made this lens specifically for the shot. It's never been used since in the entirety of cinema. And Panavision, the makers of it, actually have this lens specifically on display at their studio um and call it the david lean lens okay interesting so pretty groundbreaking and it's really really cool shot and it's not something you'll ever see in another movie well all right then so just just the ingenuity in in this the movie making here i just wanted to i i wanted to appreciate that for this is before vfx when we actually had to be creative with how we shot things yeah exactly 
then that's where, you know, afterwards he gets his Arab clothes and that's the scene that I, I mentioned as the one scene to sell the movie in the primer. He kind of earns the respect of the people at that point. Yeah. He almost and even like the, the respect of Sharif too, right? Yeah. Sharif and him clash quite a bit. And this is the first time that Sharif really appreciates him. And this is where their bond starts because they're very close after this throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, immediately after donning this new Arab clothing and him spending all that time with himself. And this is where, this is the turning point of Lawrence for me. Mm -hmm. So this is where Lawrence as a charismatic, intelligent man goes from that. And then he, like with the scene with him, like looking in the dagger and everything, like to me that shows like, Lawrence starting to believe in himself as a higher power, as a as believe a, his own hype. Yeah, he's, he's starting to think of himself as more of like a, a prophet and a deity than like a man, a person. Yeah, a and the, fallible I, person. Yeah, and that's where this scene is really, really crucial to me, and and portraying that and showing like him becoming more than what he is. Yeah, there will be fatal consequences for that. Yeah, and so so that's where. Again, like I said, this is this is incru- crucial to understanding who Lawrence is, is this scene. And then after that, like while he's doing all of this, the other sheaf interrupts him uh, in a really funny way. Like uh, Adwa interrupts his kind of moment of celebration. His preening, yeah. And it's, it's really funny because he actually is taken aback and like it's really awkward for a sec because... It's like if you're singing in the car and somebody and you look over and somebody's just like staring at you. Um, that was a little too specific, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just you know what I mean though. It's like yeah. something where it's like it feels like deeply personal and somebody has like caught you in the act of doing something like that. Oh yeah, like it's one of those I didn't know you were there moments. Exactly, yeah. it's like one of yeah the moments of film I think. And he catches him, and then this harkens back to when him and his previous guide are caught drinking from the well. And so Lawrence understands the consequences of this, but they're caught by the sheaf drinking from his well. Right. Which is essentially, if you're not permitted to, I punishable think, by death. Yeah, yeah. punishable by, by death is drinking each other's water. So something that uh, I think the Dune series, <laughs> again, alludes to quite a bit is the importance of water in the desert. Sure, yeah. And and again, this is where Lawrence as a person becomes starts to become more of the person he's going to be in that he's able to actually convince the sheaf to join their cause and not have them all killed. And he does so in a way of like, like he basically says, are you the, the sheaf that I've heard about? Um, because the sheaf that I've heard about would be noble and would do this and that kind of thing. And, you know, he wouldn't punish people who had just done this incredible feat of crossing the Navud desert and punishing them for drinking from his well. And the sheaf is like, oh, you know, this must be somebody else that you're talking of. But he kind of puts his weapon away and like he you can see like his hostility kind of just like fall back. Like he, he goes from being like his his body posture is like very like hostile and it kind of like. He relaxes. relaxes. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of the disarming nature of Lawrence and at showing like him as a leader who, in this moment, somebody who is directly like everything before this, he's kind of indirectly making people follow him. But this yeah. is the first time that he really like throwing his fucking weight around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and so I think that this is all really important to the prior moments where he's like, you know, checking himself out in the Arabian clothing. Like this is this is like like I said, this is a very very important. Scene he's like, I'm Lords film. of Arabia now. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This is the highlight of the whole movie for me. There's is also this, spot. this that other movie. I forget who he's talking to, but he says like. I think it's Sharif. It might be somebody else asking him about like his father and Lawrence reveals like, well, you know, my parents weren't married when I was born, blah, 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 blah. And then the other person says, well, it seems then that you can choose whatever name you want. Right. And I'm just like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Clever. Yeah. Well, and that, again, that's something that of the reality of Lawrence as a person prior to, like he was a bastard child, essentially. Yeah. You know, he's he's got a very weird place in this world as it is. Yeah, Absolutely. So, yeah, so then he convinces the chief to join their cause and take Akuba. Then we get the siege of Akuba, which is, again, one of the best parts of the movie for me. Like, mm-hmm. it, honestly, unfortunately, it's too short because... Ironically, for yeah. all the long desert shots, the siege is over pretty quickly. Yeah, and that's partially due to filming constraints, but they actually, they film that in Spain and... It's a like very very detailed recreation of what Akuba was. Okay. Um. And so this is something that actually happened in real life. He actually did siege this. Again, it's one of the coolest scenes of the whole movie because it's hundreds of horses, like literal hundreds of horses, horses and camels, laying siege to this little city, this mm-hmm. outpost. It's incredible. Like I, I don't think I breathed for the like three minutes that it happened. Yeah, it's pretty good. But that's where, you know, it's short. And then afterwards, he they're kind of all reveling in their spoils or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Yeah. That's when they find out there's no gold there. Yeah. Because he's essentially promised these people wealth and riches. And as well, like as a, as another thing, like he, he's promised them, you know, the, the military might be able to get the British, but these... These people are more interested in their own wealth and and filling lining their pockets with the gold of the Turks, and they find out that that's not there, and they're pretty hostile towards them about that. Yeah, so that's when he's like, "I'll go back to Britain and come back with gold." Yeah, so <laughs> and guns. Yeah, so him and his two assistants at that point leave for Cairo to yeah. go and and get more assistance in the gold that he promised them, and that's where I actually would have put the intermission. At the moment where he says, we're going to leave and we're going to go do this. That's, in my mind, that's the perfect spot for the intermission because it leaves on this like big note. And then we start off again, like with some traversal through the desert and we get to where we're going right now, which is with Lawrence's first like, no, I missed a part. So even before the siege, actually, and this is something that we missed that's very important to Lawrence as a character as well, yeah. is when there's this big skirmish between the prince's 50 men and the chief's war band. Actually, one of the chief's men is actually killed by one of Faisal's men. Mm -hmm. There's this realization that, you know, Lawrence and, and the two leaders have a discussion where they're basically like, well, we need retribution. Somebody has to die on your side. And Lawrence realizes that if the chief's group of people are allowed to kill somebody of Faisal's group, then this blood feud will continue. There won't be any sort of actual resolve here. Mm-hmm. And so Lawrence volunteers himself to be the executioner. And that's when we get this big realization that the person who actually 
killed one of the chief's men was Gassum, who he saved in the desert. Yeah, actually, that might have been the highlight of the movie for me. That's one of the few moments where I was like, oh, like, yeah, oh my. And then shoots him like six times, by the way. Yeah. I was like, wow, you got him. (laughs) Well, I think, again, I I think you're right. This is one of the highlights of the entire film because it's like almost like a slap in the face to him and everything that he's achieved up to this point in time. But it's also a slap in the face to us, right? Like, as an audience, there's this heroic moment. Lawrence has done something that the Arab people don't even believe in him to do, and he saves this man when he goes out of his way to save this man and put his own life on the line. And in the end, this man betrays him, essentially, by by killing one of the chief's men. Yeah, it's also a moment where you're like, oh, maybe Lawrence isn't, the great guy we thought he was. Yeah, because Lawrence, like you said, with Lawrence shooting him and like unloading his gun on him, that's where you know Lawrence didn't have to do that. But it's there's something below the surface of Lawrence that's corrupt. Yeah, and you know what? Let's let's unpack that right now. Later on, when he gets back to Cairo or whatever, and he talks to his superiors, like he's all shaken and he doesn't want to go back. And he talks about how he had to like execute somebody, and his superiors like. Uh, whatever, like it happens. Right. And Lawrence's like, no, you don't understand. Like, I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the best parts of the, like, that's one of the best little parts of dialogue in this movie is him, like, you know, reckoning with himself and, like, realizing that he he lost control in that moment. Or that he, there was something in that he enjoyed having power over life and death in that moment. Yes. And yeah. that's, that's the biggest point of who I find Lawrence is, is he is a man who is extremely charismatic and really adores these people and adores their culture and wants to know more. But he he's also somebody that has been given this little bit of power and is beginning to revel in it. And yeah, and it's overpowering in a sense who he, the kind like charismatic person that he is because below the surface, and this is something that, you know, like, you never know as a person like what would you do if you're given if you're given this unlimited power essentially I don't know and I hope I never find out <laughs> Yeah <laughs> And that's that's maybe part of like what the great man films do is like it's a reckoning of great men and their struggles and like how the world perceives them but also like when given all of this power and opportunity is that healthy you know I Guess not. And you know what? Maybe we should get into this. Um, again, I've said before, the moments in the movie that I liked are the moments where the movie is calling Lawrence out or making fun of him. And like, this is where I think we can tie it into Dune. And like, hey, there might be some spoilers for the next movie if you haven't seen it yet. And potentially the third movie. Potentially even the third movie. But like, Dune, as it turns out, is a whole deconstruction on the great man theory, right? Right. Paul ends up becoming the god emperor of space, but then his actions lead to the deaths of billions of people. Right. The cult that he's created around himself becomes murderous, and it ends up causing the deaths of untold billions to the point where I think the second book ends with Paul in disgrace, like wandering off alone into the desert. Yeah. And And then in the next book, spoiler alert, I think he comes out, he returns as a wanderer denouncing the religion that's built around himself. Right. And yeah. that's where, again, like the obvious connection to Dune here and the inspiration of Lawrence as a person inspiring who Paul Atreides is. I think yeah. that's, you know, so deeply ingrained in the, 
the Book of Dune. Well, I mean, another thing you could talk about with this movie and how maybe um, it hasn't aged well, maybe there's something a little problematic about it, is how it ties into that whole white savior trope. Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) hey, I'm the white guy and I'm here to save you guys, Yeah, you know? And this movie certainly hasn't aged well in a lot of different ways, but like, I guess the fact that they're taking that trope and kind of subverting it where it's like, fuck you, Lawrence, you're making everything worse. It's kind of like, I mean, there's an argument to be made for how the um, Arab people are portrayed. I do remember there's this one moment where one of the Arab characters is like calling Lawrence out and being like, oh, you think we're savages, whatever. And then in the next scene, one of the Arabs is like speaking very monosyllabically and like mm-hmm. referring to himself in the third person. And I was like, okay, movie, you got to pick a lane. Like, <laughs> You got to pick a lane. I mean, if this movie was made nowadays, they would probably push it a lot further. And I think that would have been correct. Showing maybe Lawrence is more of an asshole and how his actions are leading to a lot of deaths. Right. This movie is like self-aware though. Like there are lots mm-hmm. of moments where the Arab characters are saying stuff like like when he's leaving to go return to Cairo and come back, I think it's Sharif says, "Oh, and you're going to tell all your friends about like the primitive little people that you palled around with for right. a while, right?" Or Prince Faisal has that great moment where he's like, we used to have a glorious empire like 900 years ago Yeah, when you guys were still like living in huts or something. So the movie has moments where it shows how problematic the British colonial thing is being. Yeah. But then I also think there's moments where they're showing, you know, the Arabs as backwards and violent and shit like that. So yeah. I think this movie, you could argue it's, and I mean, uh, you've also got actors in brownface, so, <laughs> you c- so I mean, yeah, the movie's definitely racist, yeah. so maybe it was a little progressive for its time, but yeah. Also, I have something else to talk about while I'm on a roll here. You're on a fucking roll. Yeah. Have I just been talking for five minutes? I have no idea. I'm I'm entranced. Okay, go. Keep go going. All right. I'll keep talking. At about 45, 44 minutes into the movie, and I wrote this down in my notes, like, where are the women? Question mark. Yes. Yeah. Also, and then an hour and a half in, I was like, where are the women? Question mark. Question mark. This is the longest film in history, not including like silent films, where a woman, a woman character does not have a speaking part in it. No, I mean, film. I think maybe there's one scene where you see some like Arab women in the background. You're like, oh, look, there they are. But yeah. like they exist. They exist. <laughs> yeah, this, is, <laughs> this is the most sausage festy movie I've ever seen. Yes. Like. No, it was just so funny. Like forty-five minutes in, I'm just like, "Hey, <laughs> like, are yeah, there, are it, there any women in this movie?" Yeah, that's something that stuck out as me as well in 2024, and it is something that has been famously noted. And, <laughs> but yeah, no, like yeah. it's something that obviously, at this point in history, in World War One, the large, like ninety-nine point nine nine percent of soldiers would have been male. Yes, of course. But that's not to say that women were not important during this time either. Yeah. Like, you know, that's where something like Oppenheimer, even though Oppenheimer gets some chagrin for the way that it portrays women. I do love how they'll show Florence 
pews boobs every other scene but then they'll have a what's his face crossing his legs yeah like so some his dick yeah it's like su- stuff i like want to see killian murphy's dick <laughs> <laughs> let me see it but, but what i mean is like you know like the sense that the way that chris nolan portrays women can sometimes be you know controversial and, sure. and it's actually more so emily blunt's character that gets more controversy over than florence Pugh's character sure but at least he portrays women. At least women <laughs> exist. Yes. Yeah. So that's definitely something that has especially well, it's I kind think. of inexcusable too. Like he's in Arabia. Yeah. Where are the women? It's almost like I think yeah. I made this joke to Emily. It's like everyone in these movies just it's just men reproducing asexually and creating more <laughs> yeah. more men to fight in their wars. You know, Attack of the Clones. I didn't think I'd ever be bringing that up in this yeah, movie, but it's like, like that. Attack of the Clones just solved this problem by like cloning men. That that, that that's that's the solution. There. But at least it Natalie just, Portman was in the movie. <laughs> it solved every movie that occurred before 1970. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, it's. It's Man. pretty. It's so bad. Hey, speaking of which, um, should we talk about? I don't know if there's a tasteful way to talk about this. Um, <laughs> so the from the first scene that Lawrence appears in, just from like his mannerisms, the way he was talking, I was like, hmm. So I got on Wikipedia and I googled the real guy, yep. and he was definitely gay. It's there's speculation. Seen, there's a lot of heavy speculation towards that, and. It depends on how you read into it. I read yeah. into it because I, I picked up on it. I certainly picked up on it. Something that even, and you know, like Ben-Hur, we talked about the homoerotic nature of some of the sure, characters and relationships yeah. there. But for me personally, I read Peter O'Toole's portrayal more as a theater kid style portrayal than as a character being portrayed with some homoerotic yeah tendencies over the top yeah yeah okay fair enough again your reading may vary on that and the historians are divided on that but well and i think even at this point in hollywood you couldn't show gay characters on screen so they would have had to just i'd have to look it up i don't know if peter o'toole or the director wanted to see what they could get away with but i mean back for this movie at this day and age like even if they wanted to show him as gay then i don't know why i hesitated there (laughs) even if they wanted to show him as gay like they couldn't have been explicit about it which i and like it doesn't color i just think it's an interesting detail like i didn't know anything about te lawrence going into this movie or even much of what this movie was about i just thought it was kind of interesting i was like right are they trying to create like an openly gay protagonist in 1963 yeah but alas yeah no i I definitely picked up on it, but I read it slightly differently. And then the historians are out on it. Like okay. it's it it's unknown. I guess is how I would put it. He has a couple line reads where he's like, "Well, then you'd be a murderer as well as a thief." And I was just like, "Hmm." <laughs> it's just the performance is flamboyant. Yeah, I, maybe that's what it is. The performance is just very over the top. Yeah, yeah. But no, I think I think it's valid to bring up because it is a questionable part of history whether or not he was so well even um i think i was reading that like there's theories that he was he had some masochistic tendencies right and then in the movie he's constantly burning cigarettes or he's burning matches down to his fingers and it's kind of like hmm like yeah interesting so at this point in time if we actually back into where we are in the movie here so there's we're just before the intermission and he crosses the Sinai desert with his two assistants 
Dodd and Farage. Yes. Dodd dies in quicksand on yeah. this journey. Maybe sure does. one of the most iconic quicksand scenes in film. Yeah. It happens pretty quickly. You know, this is where I think Lawrence, there's like this, the little bit of self-doubt. The last little, like the last piece of the Lawrence that we met in this film shows shows up here. Oh, he's um, he's distraught at yeah, this point that like, he couldn't save the little guy. Yeah, and then that's where, you know, when he gets back and we get back to the British army and he's ready to quit, you know, right? Like this is Lawrence recognizing who he is at the beginning of this film and reckoning with who he's going to become. This is like, again, this really goes back to ties back to Dune and Paul Atreides and having this vision of who he's going to be and what he's going to become and what he's going to bring about. Lawrence tries to back out at this point, but he's become nothing to do with it. Yeah, but he's become such an asset to the, the British military that they send him back they send him back out into the desert to they immediately promote him to major yes i don't know much about british military hierarchy but isn't he like a lieutenant at the start of the movie yes so he goes from a lieutenant to major so i don't know if he jumped up like three levels i don't know enough about the military either okay. um, yeah i no, I, I don't know i because he jumps up another military position by the end as well right so i, oh, yeah. I it must be the right order because he's a colonel by the end yeah he is colonel by the end that's right so he's sent back out by general allenby can i just say though like in terms of like i know that with older movies the acting can sometimes be a little different but there's that great moment when they're like taking a carriage or something to the military headquarters and they're both lawrence and farage are sleeping Mm -hmm. and then farage wakes up from a nightmare he's just like dud and then the british officer's like oh we're here sir and just (laughs) something about that moment really made me laugh nice to be honest um i actually like where the intermission is just because during the course of the intermission we jump forward four months right chronologically it makes sense to have the intermission there i feel yeah i would agree with you in that sense it just i think that in breaking up the film I do agree that it's kind of awkward that the first half is 220 minutes and then the second half is an hour 20 minutes. Yeah. That's a little bit awkward. And and part of it's just because of like how much time the opening 40 to an hour 30 spends on the scenery and chewing on the scenery. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Chewing on the sand. Yeah. Like that two hours and 20 minutes, I bet you could be done in an hour 20, an hour 40 and and be paced a little bit better there's definitely hey maybe you can edit this movie next <laughs> like edited for 2025 the, the millennials version of lawrence arabia maybe that's what we'll do um maybe that's the business we'll start we'll start editing old movies for new viewers i bas- basically just means cutting a lot of shit out if i had the time i would love to i would like yeah and that's something that i guess I look at and I think about really critically while I'm watching a film is is if the fat has been cut appropriately on a film. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, let's let's dive into part two of the film. After the intermission, we get a little bit of a time jump where Lawrence has now basically declared like a grill war on the Turks and the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, he's become like a full-blown warlord at this point, yeah. almost. Yeah, and it opens with the train hijacking where they blow up the train tracks as the train's driving over them and then they murder everybody on the train and steal all steal of a the... bunch of shit yeah, yeah. Lawrence... and i guess i should back up slightly in the sense that at this point in time as well there's been somebody else who's joined the party and that is 
the, um, journalist. Yeah. The journalist yeah. Jackson Bentley. So it, this American journalist has kind of heard about the exploits of Lawrence at this point, And he uses Lawrence as a tool to almost like bring in the American people into he, world war one. He's essentially admitted and he admits to this. He's essentially writing hero fantasy propaganda. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting idea portrayed in this film. And I think that the actor playing Jackson Bentley does a pretty good job and the screenplay does a pretty good job of like representing this aspect of the media, this dirty aspect of the media, which is, like you said, creating propaganda. Yeah, right. And then the like, there's moments where he's like taking photos and like he's very clearly framing him a certain way. Yeah, right? I find that there's an interesting detachment that he has from what's going on around him. So in that scene where Lawrence is shot and then Adwa comes up and kills his almost assassin by the use of his sword, that's where Jackson pops out of the train and goes, well, I have never seen a man <laughs> killed by a sword before. Yeah, he it's just it. like so nonchalantly says it, right? Yeah, he says it very matter-of-factly. <laughs> yeah, he's just yeah. yeah, he's just so like nonchalant about this whole thing. You know, there's at this point in time, like there's this really great scene where Lawrence is, you know, after he's been shot, he stands on top of the train and just kind of like revels in the chaos that he's caused here, right? Like, I can't remember what the scene is exactly called on movie clips, but it's something to the effect of in the shadow of the prophet. Yeah. That I actually wrote down in that scene. Like, That's a great Lor shot too, him walking on the roof of the train, the yeah. sun behind him. Yeah. yeah. And that's actually like something at that point I, I wrote down in my notes too, is that Lawrence has become a full-blown prophet at this point, or in his own eyes, he's become a prophet. Like he's no longer a human. Mm. What's interesting though, and this is jumping ahead a bit, is that, the journalist actually kind of turns on him by the end of the movie. Yeah. There's that great line where he says, like, oh, you rotten man. Let me take your rotten picture for the rotten bloody newspapers. Right. Yeah. And I'm actually, I'm on Wikipedia right now. He's actually the one, the, he's actually the guy at the beginning who says, like, you know, he was my privilege to know him and to make him known. He was a poet, a scholar, a mighty warrior, and he was mm. the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. I didn't know that was the same I didn't person. know that either. I'm just reading it on the computer. So ah, cool that connection. That makes sense. Yeah. Maybe they should have given him, like, a very distinctive hat so we could have known. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's too many... Too many old white guys in this movie. It's hard to keep, <laughs> it's hard to keep track of all of them. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. And and really like the la the last small piece of Lawrence dies in these opening parts of Act Two as well when he has to kill Farage, um, yeah, in order to not allow him to be tortured because he's been gravely injured. Yeah, that's another big moment. And so Lawrence kills him as like a in a sense to like save him from torture, but it's also like, you know, he he's fully in what you said earlier. He's fully gone native, and that's something that. You know, is actually I think it's actually spoken like those words are spoken in this film as well, right? Yeah. And you know, again, that's probably not super PC of a phrase. Yeah, today, I was actually thinking like, when we said that last week, I was just like, um. <laughs> yeah, but it conveys the idea of what it means in that Lawrence is no longer the person that we we were introduced to in the opening shots of this movie. I I think that part of Lawrence is dead. Um, or at least buried. Ve buried very deep below, and he's become this messiah. Basically. Uh, in his yeah. own eyes, right? And the Arab people that are fighting underneath of him, they see him as this like great man who is allowing them to profit off of all of this. Like that's that's really the main goal of the Arab 
people that are fighting under him is all of these this wealth that they're stealing from the Turkish Empire. Yeah, there's that great moment where the one guy, I forget his name, and I'm not even going to try, he steals like a white horse from the enemy, and then he's going to ride off with it. Mm-hmm. And um, Lawrence says something like, oh, you got what you wanted, and now you're just leaving. And he says like, hey, when you get what you want, you're going to leave too. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 and that's a really good point <laughs> yeah. as well, right? But for Lawrence, he doesn't even actually see it that way because I think that guy's speaking to the largest British empire, but Lawrence is like just so in his own head at this point. Yeah. Um, and when and- he kills Farage, he doesn't quite... Like, he's not thrilled about it, but he doesn't really seem affected by it either. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, even at that point in time, I can't remember who it is that says to Lawrence, like, you know, every every time that you do one of these sabotages and raids, you lose, like, a handful of your men. They just go back home. Yeah. And Lawrence doesn't even, like, he's so unfazed by this. He's like, ah, they'll come back later. Yeah. It's like fuck it. Yeah, they'll co- they'll come back once they've spent all the money or or whatever. He just doesn't fundamentally understand human beings. It feels like you know. No, definitely not to a fault. And then, like he's so far up his own ass too at this point. And then him and Sharif entered that Turkish city of Dara, right? Uh-huh. And they're kind of s- scouting things out. And like, Lawrence- by the way, that's a hilarious moment. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, and and Lawrence, like, again, Lawrence is just so far up his own ass at this point that he's just boldly walking around the city as a white man in, like, a very white, bold outfit, and he thinks that he's just blending in. <laughs> yeah, that was... There's that great moment. I think this is when, uh, what's his name? Cherie, like... You know, I forget what he says, but then Cherie looks up this guy and he's like, please forgive, please be patient with him, my lord. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't remember what he, like, he says something about them not recognizing him or something. Like, they walk by and he's like, oh, they're not going to recognize me and and stop us. And then they're like, uh, sir, we need to see your papers. And he's like, or not. Um, yeah. It's it's a really funny line. And I wish I remembered exactly what it was. But and then he gets, he has that very weird encounter with the general at... What is it? Dara? Yeah. He's so lucky in this sense because they don't actually realize who he is. They just think he's a deserter. Right. Lawrence, rather than, you know, just play along with it and, you know, try to, like, get out of this unscathed, he lashes out at them violently. Mm -hmm. And this results in him being tortured, yeah, yeah, flogged, potentially raped. That's somewhat implied. Somewhat implied. There's that extreme close-up shot of the uh, general's lips. Yeah. Which usually has a seedy implication to it. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. And then he's thrown back out. And again, this is that that other moment where the prophet Lawrence is just smacked away Yeah, in this moment. Again. Humbled. Yeah. And- the old Lawrence reappears here and, and the unsure of himself Lawrence reappears very strongly. And, you know, Lawrence actually tries to tries to leave, doesn't he, at this point? Like, he tries to go back to the British Army. Um, yep. At this point in time, like, he doesn't even fit in into the British Army anymore. Like, yeah, he's a man without a country, so to speak. Yeah. At this point in time, like with with how awkward he is there, he's convinced by General Allenby to push ahead with their big plan to take back Damascus, um, and that's something that you know he's he's spoken about earlier in this film that he's going to be the first one to end up in Damascus. Yeah. At this point, he actually does agree to go back to the Arab people and lead 
the final assault, essentially, the march towards Damascus. Yep, and then that's when the big massacre happens. The big no prisoners moment. Yes, that's one of the more iconic scenes of the movie, just in the sense of how like dark it is. Yeah, this is when the movie finally, and then we see like the complete, because up until this point, at least for me, the war has always felt very like distant. Yeah. And like the violence has always seemed very, like we've seen people get shot. Lawrence has gotten shot at one point on screen. But it's like old school violence. Yeah, it's always felt very sanitized. Yeah. Distant. This is the moment though where like, there's that great shot of like the complete devastation and you're like, like there yeah, it is. Yeah, that town is like just utterly obliterated. Just fucked. Women and yeah. children, all like bodies splayed out everywhere. Well, like... just children. There's no women in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's where they arrive past this town. They see it all, and then they see the Turkish army leaving this area. And there's one man who's screaming, no prisoners, no prisoners. And that's when Adwa says, like, to Lawrence, that man, this is that man's, like, village. And he charges them, even though Lawrence is saying to stay back. And, you know, the Turks do the obvious thing when a lone man is charging them. With a sword. Yeah, they gun him down. (laughs) Yeah. Lawrence, at that point, starts shouting no prisoners and goes full charge on them with his entire army. Yeah, it's the same energy as uh, Daenerys Targaryen burning King's Landing. Yeah. Just like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, even at this point, like, like uh, Sharif is begging him to stop, right? Which is an interesting inversion from how they met, where yes. Lawrence was all like the pacifist who didn't want anyone to get hurt, and Sharif had a very cold, detached attitude. Now they've, yeah, they've done a complete 180 on each other. Yeah. It's one of the, like the more devastating scenes of the entire film because it's like all humanity in this person is gone at this point it feels like pretty much and it seems so senseless too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Like it's it's a hard scene to watch. Um, Definitely, yeah. And that's makes it all the more effective. And and it completes like that final transformation. After that, they do eventually make it to Damascus and they make it there first. They're there before the Brits are. You know, Lawrence tries to mediate a council of Arab people and Arab tribes to administer the city and and essentially, like, you know, take control of this area. Again, this is like the the fundamental problem of of who Lawrence is and not understanding these people. The tribes just don't get along. They don't fundamentally want to run a large, like, city like this together. Yeah, no, it's there's too much bad blood there. Yeah, there's just not a people who are interested in this Western idea of of councils and you know democracy, right? That's where you know, like, and it's not helped as well that the the British forces end up cutting all of the power and utilities and everything. Yeah, that wasn't a good move. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. At, at the same time, like, you know, Lawrence is eventually abandoned by everyone except for his two most loyal followers, Sharif and Adwa, mm-hmm. even at that point in time, like they basically like throw in the towel and they say, you know, we, we did this all. And there's even at that point, like there's starting to be suspicions amongst the Arab people about what the British people really want in this war. Yeah. And I mean, it's pretty clear that like, this is pre world war two when they still had colonial shit on their mind. Right. And I mean, this gets called out by the Arab characters a few times, right? Right. They have no illusions about what the Brits really want. Yeah. And that's 
their land and, and control of this territory. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, and, and that their question on that, and like Lawrence has kind of been somewhat ignorant to what the British military is doing there. Like he does ask them at one point in the first act, like the end of the first act, like are the British coming here to essentially like colonize this Arab land? And they say, nah, don't worry about it, man. Eh, like, hey, and, what's with all the questions? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Eventually, you know, we, we find out that that is ultimately the goal of the empire. Yeah. They just want domination and control. Yeah. Yeah. So everything that Lawrence has done up to this point has been eventually the world catches up with him at this point in time, right? Mm -hmm. And his disconnect with his understanding of the Arab people, his misunderstand or his willful ignorance about what the British are there and everything. And he's kind of just cast aside, honestly, at the yeah. end of the movie, right? It's like, very Oppenheimer-y. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And and you know the the war machine no longer needs him, and they so they promote him to colonel and send him back to Britain. They're like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, even Faisal doesn't really have any use for him at this point. It's like, all right. And that's so it's so fascinating to think about that, right? About this man who's given everything, like he he's given himself away, like he's no longer somebody who fits into even the British culture and, and the British military at this point, and he's been sent back home to Britain. And like that's the ultimate like twist to the knife, right? Yeah, it's like you were very, very instrumental. Thank you. You can we'll take it from here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? That's kind of how the movie ends. It's a very appropriate I really like the ending a lot. Yeah. Especially that part where like the motors you see the motorcycle. Right. And you're just kinda like, Oh yeah, you're gonna die on your motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah, years. it's it, it definitely brings it back full circle to the yeah, beginning. Right? That was a very nice touch. In a in a very subtle way. And it's also just it's a very downer ending because it's kinda like you killed all these people and you did all this for what? Now we're just sending you home. And and that's I think ultimately often where the great man story ends is it's for you to judge what your thoughts are on this person, but ultimately this person was cast aside like any other great man. Like the great man serves a purpose until he no longer does. Until you're, yep, yeah. And I like that ending because I didn't really like Lawrence all that much. I was just like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like I I don't know that I would say that I liked Lawrence either, but I, I liked Lawrence's character arc through the film. Yeah, I actually, I actually found it pretty fascinating, despite the issues with pacing that I had that we've talked about extensively. It, well, it is kind of like you know you go from naive outsider to insider to hero to tyrant to murderer to nothing. Yeah. Now go home, Lawrence. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for playing. <laughs> so, do you feel a little bit more like you understand Lawrence talking through this now at this point, or not? Nah? I mean, like, I, I, I mean, I got it. I got what the movie was trying to do. I just wasn't vibing with it that much. And that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Like I, I, I can't say that I necessarily did either. And like a, a lot of that's just the way that this film decided to. Might have almost worked better as a book, which I mean is funny because it's kind of based on a book that yeah. he wrote. Well, this is a great segue to sequels, prequels, reboots. Yeah, this let's is do it. <laughs> based on. By the T- way, I also want to say Lawrence 
T.E. Lawrence was actually a prolific writer in his time. That's another great detail that I would have loved to have seen more of in the movie. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. That's actually the reason why a film like this came to be is because of the extensive writing that Lawrence did. Yeah, like he wrote an autobiography called, like, what was it? Like, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom yep. about his whole campaign. And then he wrote an abridged version of his own autobiography that this movie directly adapts from. I forget what it, the abridged version was called. Yeah, the abridged version is Revolt. Seven Pillars of Wisdom is the long version. I think that's the biggest piece of this is the autobiographical nature of this. Although there's been so much discussion and dispute amongst historians about, you know, the reliability of Lawrence as his own biographical. Oh, one of the first things you learn in English class is that every first person narrator is full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, part of that comes back to the infallibility or the fallibility of our memories you know oh yeah jesus like you and i might experience the same thing an hour ago and have very different memories of what that experience was yeah that's a good point you know looking back on your life over a course of years there's definitely going to be things that you view differently from the rest of people and you, you might embellish things yourself and and not note especially if you're like you know, you lean more towards like a tendency of uh, self-aggrandizement versus self-deprecation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think of the the right word, but yeah, that's pretty close to what I was thinking. And then Lawrence as an archaeologist doesn't really get brought up, but I think that's pretty crucial to his person before this and, and why he's so interested in the Arab nation. Yeah. So there hasn't been any like sequels to this, obviously, because this covers like Lawrence's entire formidable life. Um, formidable is a good way of putting it yeah i hope that when i die and you give my eulogy you describe me as formidable <laughs> there i believe that there is oh uh, maybe that there wasn't i thought there was maybe some other adaptations of lawrence of arabia um according to wikipedia there was kind of a made for tv sequel i think yeah, yeah in 1990 there was a i'm just reading this from wikipedia there's a sequel with ralph fines yeah, it was called A Dangerous Man, Lawrence After Arabia. <laughs> yeah, you're right, with Voldemort. Yeah. I don't think it did very well. I oh. doubt it, although it is significant for Ralph Fiennes' career, apparently. Yeah, it looks like, yeah, some people did okay. Oh, and it looks like it won an Emmy in 1992 for Best Drama. So maybe it was all right. Maybe we'll check it out. I, I'm i not sure if I'm going to have time for this one. You know, I watched seven... Uh... Seven Tremors movies. I'm not sure if I have time for the another. Lawrence. Are you done with the desert? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not done with the desert because I'm excited for Doom Part Two in a month. But oh yeah, really well, maybe, excited for Doom. Maybe Part I'll two. watch it, and then in our next episode, I'll give you a little rundown on. Yeah, it. that's that seems fair. I watched seven Tremors movies. You could watch a TV. Movie. It's only an hour and seven minutes too. So. Perfect. <laughs> they they went like they checked their time and they checked the first movie's time and they went let's do the exact opposite. And it came out in 1990, so it was like 30. It's the rare delayed sequel. The other thing about the comparison of the real-life Lawrence to the movie is I think sometimes I was a little confused about like how long this kind of took in the movie. Like Days or months were spread out like over the course of the movie that we saw of Lawrence's life. The movie actually took longer to make than what it was portraying on screen. Yeah, so I think it was like a this is about a year in Lawrence's life that this took place over and, and, and maybe just under a year. Mm -hmm. And the movie took like well over a year to shoot. And then 
all the extra time editing and everything else, right? Interesting. I did hear that apparently, what's his name? Uh, Peter O'Toole really hates this movie just because of how difficult a production it was. Yeah. Let's talk effects of filming right now because that was something that I was reading. Like That was one of the last things that I read is that he was injured constantly throughout the filming <laughs> of this. He received third-degree burns, sprained both his ankles, tore ligaments, broke his thumb, dislocated his spine, fractured his skull. How? <laughs> he got bitten by a camel, sprained his neck, tore a grind muscle, and was concussed twice. Wow, were they just beating the crap out of him between takes? Well, he almost died at one point. Like During the scene of the Akuba siege, yeah. he fell off of his camel, or he was thrown off of his camel during ha. the Akuba scene. In real life, Lawrence almost died during this as well. He was thrown off and because he accidentally shot his camel in the head <laughs> while they were charging. <laughs> Very heroic move. And then O'Toole was actually, again, thrown off at the beginning of the shot when they yelled action because they shot a rocket to tell everybody that the scene was starting. As Getting like several hundred extras to like charge this, you needed that kind of like <laughs> you need a artillery yeah. yeah they actually said that o'toole was like temporarily blinded by that uh by being like kicked off and hitting his head or something and then huh. apparently the camel was trained to if any but like camels are trained to stand over their their riders if they fall off so the camel just stood over top of him to make sure that he didn't get like run over huh yeah, he was lucky that he didn't get trampled over and that his camel just stood on top of him, essentially. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Very, I, I can understand. Uh, Is that like the record for the most injuries sustained during a it's movie It's certainly ever? up there. And also another point of saying that you can't make these kind of movies today. Um, mm. or They don't make them like they used to because making them like they used to results in near death of your main star. Well, no wonder Peter O'Toole was drunk the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really funny note too is how smashed he was. So hammered all the time that Alec Guinness made a note to comment about it and say how he lost all respect for O'Toole as an actor by the end of this film. If they And you know what? If they thought you were an alcoholic in the 60s, you must have been a raging alcoholic. Yeah. Because everyone was drunk back then. Yeah. All the time. So I do want to mention quickly as well, like where this movie was shot, because watching this, I, I assume that this was all shot in some part of Arabia. It, a lot of the desert scenes were shot in Jordan, but there was some issues like with the shooting and the location and just securing everything where they ended up moving locations and shooting the bulk of the film in Morocco Almeria and Spain. And that's where they recreated the Akuba set was actually in Spain. Hmm. Okay. And that's something that I did want to note as well is just like the level of detail, the attention to detail that was put into this film is noteworthy. I, uh, in my opinion, like the Akuba set was recreated on a level of detail that it's hard to imagine a modern day movie spending this kind of time and energy on when they could just cgi stuff the set they built 300 buildings they thought really hard about what this set would have looked like in 1917 it's an incredible feat of reconstruction of this time period i will say as much as maybe this is maybe to the detriment of my enjoyment of the movie this movie is epic yes in back when that actually meant something yes yeah i agree i mean 
this movie it like you have to admire the scope and the grandeur even yeah. if i personally think the scope and the grandeur kind of maybe overshadows some of the story itself i i very much agree with that sentiment and speaking of like how they were kind of able to pull off the epic nature of it almost every movement in this film is moving from left to right to frame this film as a journey oh interesting that was like a very conscious decision that they made Huh. Oh, this is like a tiny detail that I, again, I'm, I'm going to mention a few other tiny details. This is a tiny detail amongst the tiny details that I really love. The costume designer actually came up with like a subtle way to show Lawrence's transition throughout the film and how he's his failing grip over his war band. So as, as the movie progresses, his robes become thinner and thinner until they're basically like, they're gone essentially. They're translucent, um, and they're they're less and less material on him. Hmm. So it's just one of those little details that I I thought was really neat. All those extras were actual soldiers. They used Moroccan soldiers for the Turkish army. They were actually planning to shoot the massacre scene in a lot more detail, but they ended up not being able to because the Moroccan army weren't getting paid for this, and they kind of hated being on set and filming this movie. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess them and Peter O'Toole had stuff to bond over. Well, they actually took pot shots at the cast and crew while they were not <laughs> filming. Okay, you really can't make this movie anymore. Yeah, other soldiers were deserting between takes and so and never came back to set. So <laughs> <laughs> things were a little shaky on set with the Moroccan army. They actually found, this is a really cool little piece of history, but while they were scouting locations in Jordan, they actually found the Turkish trains that had been destroyed by Lawrence like 50 years prior during the Arab Revolution. They were still there. I, I don't know if they're still there today, if you can visit them or not, but I imagine right now with how war-torn everything is over there, you can't. But but it is pretty wild to to imagine coming across a half obliterated train in the desert that is certainly noteworthy <laughs> yeah it's conversation worthy oh i don't know did you catch this this is something that i pointed out to jess while we were watching while they were filming the night scenes while they were on camel did you notice that they the scene was framed during the day day for night yeah yeah the the camels all had sh- really pronounced shadows behind them or below them and i actually pointed that out to jess i was like they're filming this in the day and they just actually like dimmed the light yeah lighting. that's an old timey hollywood technique day for night yeah yeah it, it's kind of obvious it, it doesn't hold up super well especially if you've got like the eye for cinematography yeah. it's something that you definitely notice today yeah definitely I mean, I don't know. I guess who wants to film in the desert at night? It's probably cold. <laughs> well, it's also pretty much impossible because there's literally no lighting at that point. Yeah, that's right? a good like, point too. It would have been pitch black and like you wouldn't have been able to shoot anything. I guess there's no uh, electrical outlets out there either. Nope. <laughs> You'd have to power your lights with generators. Yeah, fuck it. Day for night. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The score of this movie is one of the most iconic scores of all time. You had to have noticed it on this movie, right? (laughs) Vaguely, but why don't you explain it to me anyways? Well, it's just, it's like this big orchestral score. It was made by Maurice Jarre, uh, who was, or Jarre, 
who was only given six weeks to compose two hours of score for <laughs> the wow. entire movie. Yeah, it, it was kind of a bit of a gong show trying to get the score together. Like they had people who quit on them because they had a couple different composers. They wanted to like, they wanted to have two different scores originally. Like they wanted an Arab and a British score and they wanted to like intermingle them and kind of play with that idea a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it ended up kind of coming out not very good. And, and I don't think both of the composers really spoke to each other at that time so i don't know how well you know connected they would have been and so they got they got maurice jar to uh or morgere to to compose like something cohesive and and they ended up really loving it he actually is somebody that we quickly mentioned on another movie that we've done and we did it last year actually around this time of year and that was the 1990 film ghost which is a film which score i also really liked right in which we've talked about recently. You and Jason, I mean. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We talked about it last year. I was a big fan of Ghost, and I very vividly remember the score of that film because it was really well mixed, mixed. and composed. Mixed. Yeah. <laughs> and then he also scored Dead Poet Society as well. So oh, that's prominent. another movie we should do one of these days. Certainly. But it's, yeah, it's really hard not to think about, like, the legacy of the score of this movie because, like I said, like, there's no way that this isn't the primary influence for John Williams' career. No, definitely not, right? For the Star Wars thing, yeah. Yeah, and even Indiana Jones, like, while I was watching this, I was like, oh, this feels like this character, and the fact that they didn't bring up that he was an archaeologist, but I think, in my opinion, they really should have, but, like, I I really deeply found the connection between Indiana Jones and Lawrence Arabia in much the score, but also a little bit of the character background. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is actually considered by the American Film Institute, AFI, as the third best score of all time. Can you name what number one or number two are? Uh, is Star Wars up there? Star Wars is number one. Okay. Indiana Jones, number two? Gone with the Wind is number two. I don't uh, think you're going to guess that one. We should do Gone with the Wind at one of these points, I think we'll do too. it next year, maybe. I'd That's like another to... like four-hour epic. Yeah, and we can only really have time to do one of those a year. So. That's true. And yeah. that movie is another one of those like one every Oscar ever movies so (laughs) yeah that's true too so i think we'll do it next year probably or actually no sorry next year i've got plans on potentially revisiting the godfather because that'll be the year that the godfather 2 swept oh uh, hey i'll definitely there for that yeah Yeah, so we'll do the godfather 2 next year and then we will fit in within the next couple years at some point i really want to do gone with one i've never seen it before oh really okay i saw it like 12 years ago yeah i was like 18 it's an old ass movie. Thoughts on Gone with the Wind? I remember liking it. Cool. All yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it later. We're doing this. This is Lawrence Arabia. So a couple of comments on the look back at the times. Peter O'Toole almost didn't get the role of Lawrence because maybe somewhat famous actor at the time, Marlon Brando, <laughs> was originally the primary target for playing Lawrence. Holy shit. Can you imagine Marlon Brando as Lawrence? Like this uh, would have been one of the greatest movies of all time or a disaster. I mean, it would have been, I mean, just like uh, you come in here, yeah, you drink from my well, you speak to me with such disrespect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, no when I, prisoners. <laughs> when I think of Marlon Brando and what he would have brought to this role, I actually think a lot more of, apocalypse now right and his oh god he would have been terrifying as evil lawrence yeah exactly right like he would have been captain kirk essentially captain kurtz kurtz yeah captain damn it 
Captain Kirk was the Enterprise. Yes, I know. I I had it in my head. I had Kurtz in my head when I was thinking about That's this okay. segue earlier, but <laughs> I, I messed it up. That's okay. I uh, forgive you. <laughs> I don't uh, normally correct you on things, but I had to step in. No, that no. That, I knew that one too, and I, I still messed it up. But yeah, no, he turned it down because he said that he didn't want to spend two years of his life riding a camel. <laughs> I got to admire the honesty on that one. Well, I mean... In all honesty, it's pretty valid, too, because Peter O'Toole, at this time, the first time he tried riding a camel, he actually had blood oozing from his jeans because of, like, how much it tore up the inside of his legs. Is riding a camel hard? Oh, yeah. I don't did, know. Did I don't you know not any... pay attention to, like, like how they had to sit on the camel with their leg cross kind of thing? I didn't. I was. I actually made a comment to that while Jess and I were watching. I was like, they sit on the camels, like, significantly differently from how you ride a horse just huh. like well yeah how would you ride a horse it's a freaking camel i guess so he actually what he ended up doing was adding a layer of sponge rubber into the saddle to make it easier and better to ride with and that actually ended up becoming a significant technological improvement that he made to riding camels um so the actual bedouin tribesmen who were helping them assisting them on set in jordan ended up all adopting this measure as well as all of the extras on set of the film who were riding the camels peter o'toole is not just an actor he's an inventor peter o'toole is known in the arab world as ab al isfaja which is the arab term for father of the sponge Wow, that's funny. What have that you is... done with your life, Michael? Not you much, are, I you guess. You certainly aren't the father of the sponge. I can't. No, I'm not. Okay, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am somewhat jealous. It's also, it's just funny how sometimes like the most obvious shit is so not obvious, right? Right. Peter O'Toole was just this dumb white guy who was like, what if I just put a sponge on the saddle? And It's almost like they got the right person to portray Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, right? <laughs> and ever, you know, all of the, like the Arabs watching were just like tearing their hair out like, oh my God. <laughs> He's brilliant. Yes, so the father of the sponge himself. Wow. That's one of those things where it's like, it's so funny I can't even laugh. Like, I just, I'm just baffled. Yeah. Beautiful planet this is sometimes. <laughs> I'm going to miss humans when they're gone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I mean, yes. Hello, fellow humans. I am also one of you. Is that your best um, Zuckerberg rendition? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever do you mean? Uh, We've been recording for a while. We're starting to get a little loopy. Yeah, we're we're wrapping up very shortly. But we do have to talk Academy Awards before we wrap up on the legacy of the film. Won a lot. It was nominated 10 times for the Oscars. Uh, So I'll read off all of the nominations and then I'll read off of what it won. So the 1963 Oscars, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Peter O'Toole, Best Supporting Actor, Omar Sharif, Best Director, Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, Best Cinematography, color because they had black and white and color cinematography oh shit this was the 60s yep best art direction best sound best film editing and best music score it won best picture best director best cinematography best art direction best sound best film editing best score seven of the ten wow good for them the only three that lost was best actor in a leading role and Best Supporting Role. 
And then best writing screenplay based Uh, on another medium. Oh, okay. So what it lost to is a movie that we're going to be talking about next time on the podcast, the film To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, right. Yes, Gregory Peck won the Best Actor Award. I can kind of understand because I've I've critiqued already a little bit Peter O'Toole's performance in this one. I I feel like Peter O'Toole has a tendency to overact because I remember in Troy being like, oh, (laughs) like... Yeah, and, and that goes back to his theater roots, like you were saying. But it's been a long time since I watched Killing Mockingbird, and I'm quite excited to check it out next week. But I think that preliminarily, without having seen, because we're going to do our comparison once we watch the To Kill a Mockingbird scene. But out of the gates here, I'm going to say that I, I largely agree with the awards that it won and the awards that it lost when comparing the other giant of that year to kill a mockingbird interesting but we'll have to see how it plays out once we watch to kill a mockingbird because like i said it's honestly been about 15 years since i watched kill a mockingbird i've never seen it so i can't really comment but just based on the few clips i've seen i think that gregory peck was probably the better choice yeah yeah so yeah we'll we'll compare and contrast when we get to that next week morris jar won Best original score for this one. He also won uh, best original score for two other films, Dr. Zivago and A Passage to India, both of which are also movies directed by David Lean. Interesting. Yeah. So good collaboration there. They're like the OG Chris Nolan and Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, eh? Yeah. They're like the original the original pairing. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and then massive influences on other films. We've talked in depth at this point about how much this film influenced dune so i don't think we have to talk about that anymore what i'll say is that obviously star wars massively influenced by this like a new hope the score the desert environment he even cast alec guinness in one of the leading roles of star wars like come yeah, on right? i know it's pretty much up there yeah, yeah. so obviously i think that it's it's not hard to see those kind of connections you know, like even to other stuff, right? Like, like we talked about Hildago. We talked about we talked about how this movie shares the connection with Oppenheimer so deeply with Oppenheimer, right? Like, mm. I I'm gonna brag a little bit, humble brag. No, not even humble brag. I'm gonna brag here a little bit. Go, hey, I did man. a pretty good damn job of identifying which movie year was most connected to our current modern day Oscars. Yeah, all right, Blake. We we'll give you that one. Yeah, I I, I did a pretty good job deciding on doing this one and c- comparing it to Oppenheimer so that's fair you yeah yeah this but yeah. is me grudgingly agreeing with you and giving you praise <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no like other movies that share some of this d- the DNA of this film that have been directly influenced by this include Prometheus we've already talked about Mad Max Star Wars Star Wars Indiana Jones yep Indiana Jones apparently the Frozen franchise is yeah, share some dna i haven't seen frozen i've seen frozen one and half of frozen two i don't really see it well apparently it shares some sort of influences there okay uh, as well as hurt locker Catherine yep. bigelow's famous film that's a good movie i actually have never seen the hurt locker it's tense yeah i believe that <laughs> <laughs> and then finally steven spielberg commented at one point that if this movie was made today he figures it would have cost at least 285 million to make so one of the most expensive films of all time. Yep. At the time that it was made, it cost 
$15 million, oh, which God. is like... Inflation has uh, really done a number on our society. Oh, yeah, because even then, like that that would have been one of the most expensive films of all time. Oh, are you kidding? Mil. And like $15 million today, that's going to get you what, like a cutesy, artsy movie. Yeah, to co- I mean, to compare, like The Godfather 10 years later was made on a budget of like $4 million. Wow. And it made $70 million at the box office against its... 15 million dollar budget oh hey 70 million at the box office nowadays is like that's a barely breaking even for a marvel movie yeah oh it's not breaking even it's like actual box office that's a flop, flop. yeah it's a flop for any yeah. big budget movie which is all we get these days is big budget movies so pretty much yeah but anyway that's it for my legacy bits oh no i do have one other silly little piece of legacy trivia hit me so the king of jordan king hussein uh not saddam hussein but <laughs> king hussein was a massive fan of this movie and frequently visited the set while they were filming okay. uh, because he allowed them to film in Jordan. He had soldiers assisting them and playing some of the soldiers earlier in the film. He actually ended up marrying a British secretary on who he met on set of the film in 1962 their son became the king of Jordan when he passed away in 1999. And so this movie has an actual legacy to the monarchy of Jordan. This movie is a kingmaker. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Good Good for them. Kind of wild that it kind of went full circle here in that Lawrence had some influence over the region of the Middle East and then the movie Lawrence of Arabia had further influence over the region of the Middle East. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Personal reviews and the partner factor. So you and I have kind of danced around our our thoughts on this one. I'm going to lead out on this one because I I finally today, it took me a week of thinking about this film to finally understand how I feel about this one. I like the history of this movie and the legacy of this film more than the film itself. Yeah. This movie helps me understand why it's so beloved. Like, watching it and reading about it, I understand why, like, you know, the boomer generation or older has a deep love for this movie. And the filmmakers of that generation have a deep love for this movie because those filmmakers were obviously so influenced by this film to make something like Star Wars and Dune and all of these other pieces that, again, the generation above us have in turn loved and then recreated and so we're actually in a sense you know we're getting a two generation view of filmography here like the movies that our parents grew up with and watched and loved are films that were influenced by this and then our movies our generation's movies are influenced by those films so we're kind of watching this through like a two generations removed is a good way of putting it yeah Yeah. so i think in that sense i really appreciate the film but you know obviously there's the aspects of the film that are racist and you know outside of the time period now and and would never be done today and shouldn't be have been shouldn't be done today no yeah there's the pacing issues that i have significant issues with the startling lack of estrogen yeah (laughs) so all of those stuff like like ultimately make this a really flawed film like i i can't say that i would put this in my top 100 movie list of all time like i understand like if i was making a 
this most historic hundred movies of all time, like most historically important. Sure, films. yeah. If we had to compile a list of like the most important movies ever, this yeah. would probably be on there. But... Oh yeah, it would be pretty high on there. But for me, it's not a movie that I think I'll return to. And in comparison, I've been itching for like two years to revisit Ben Hur. Yeah. It's been two years since we've seen it. Yeah. I think that that's, that's ultimately where I leave my opinion is that it's a, a very flawed film that I don't think I'm going to revisit and I can appreciate the history of, whereas a film like Ben-Hur holds up infinitely better as, as a form of entertainment. Yeah, I kind of had high hopes going into this movie because I had such a good time watching Ben-Hur with you, but uh, I found the movie kind of boring, which yeah. sounds... Yeah, come at me, film snobs. I don't care. I already <laughs> said I hated Aguirre last year, so <laughs> which I loved. So yeah, you can suck it. that movie rocked. <laughs> yeah, I just I wanted. It's the same problem I had with Oppenheimer. I didn't really feel that connected to the plot or the characters or what was going on. As grand and epic as this movie was, I felt very disconnected from a lot of what was going on. And I think part of that is again like your and I's taste in films. Sure. And- you and I are just not people who are particularly interested in films as biographical storytelling narratives. You know what? I'm going to disagree with that. You know what it is? It's that I've worked as a journalist for a number of years, and my philosophy has always been like, I don't really give a shit what you're doing. I care why you're doing it. Yeah. Right? And the movie does give us a little bit into Lawrence, but I needed more. Yeah. I, I just think for me personally, I, I had enough of like Lawrence they gave me enough of Lawrence it just it was disjointed because of all of the big stuff that they were doing as well not enough yeah yeah partner factor Jess was bored to tears by this film she actually didn't even watch the last like 30 minutes of it she gave up she she was that far in and she gave up on the movie oh man um, yeah the, and, and that kind of again speaks to who this movie is for in 2024 and I, I think that's pretty gonna be a pretty limited audience and I kind of expect us to get chirped quite a bit for not liking this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's always, I always feel like guilty and trepidatious coming in when there's a classic that I wasn't, it's a movie that like everyone else loves that I'm not super into, but like, like I would lose respect for myself if I was like, it's great. Do you like it? I like it. Yeah. You know, well, it's kind of like when you're a young man and you're on a date with a beautiful woman, she's like. You're like, I love olives. She's like, I hate olives. You're like, I hate them too now. Like, yeah. what a weird metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> We've been recording too long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and th- yeah, I think that ultimately, while you and I can both appreciate aspects of the film, that's the reality. Like sometimes movies don't hold the- up to the test of time. Or sometimes it's just a personal thing, right? You yep. know, it doesn't mean the movie, it doesn't mean that we think the movie's bad. I don't think this movie is bad. No, I don't think it's means. bad either. It, it's I, just I, flawed. I, and I think I even said that about Aguri. It's like, I don't think this is a bad movie. It's just not for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. I would love to hear some opinions about this I movie. I would too. I would really, really, really. If there's anyone who's watched it recently, I would really like to hear what people think. So would I. You know, and maybe maybe I missed something. Maybe I misinterpreted something that would fundamentally change my viewing experience, but I don't think that it would. No. Sound off in the comments. Let us yeah, know. Yeah, if you want to argue with us, go right ahead. <laughs> We encourage it. Yeah. And if you're on Twitter, um, trending Vintage Cinema Rewind hates Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> and if you're on Twitter, just start the hashtag uh, VCR has terrible taste. Yeah. 
<laughs> that that's what we want to be known for our bad takes on classic movies yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> hey maybe that's we're not going to be the father of sponges but maybe we'll be the father of bad takes yeah i would i could live with that i don't know if i could <laughs> <laughs> You and I are on have different uh, expectations for ourselves uh, and this podcast. It's okay. That's it though. We're we're done. We've talked for too long. Let's let's wrap her up. Yeah. It was a good episode. I'm glad we talked about this movie. I'm glad we did it, but I'm never going to revisit this film. Nope. We're going to make ourselves two tall glasses of lemonade and never speak of it again. <laughs> yeah. All right. See you next week for To Kill a Mockingbird. Tell your dad. Tell your father. <laughs>